The following audio may contain coarse language and other material that may not be suitable for a younger audience. Viewer discretion is advised. Also, we may spoil anything and everything, so you have been warned. I'm Sarah Becker. I'm Jenna Rose. And I'm Trevor Flynn, and welcome to the Movie Gang Podcast, Television Edition. Yay! Yay! Hooray! Uh, uh, We have to make an exception every once in a while for a show that we just feel like we need to talk about, and that we all actually watched, which is a rare thing these days. So, uh, (laughs) glad we're all here for this. Um, I am just cutting in at the top as uh, intermittent host to do some housekeeping and... uh, going to close at the end. Uh, Sarah is our expert in this uh, universe, or should I say universes? We are reviewing His Dark Materials Season 2, based on uh, largely on The Subtle Knife, second book in the trilogy of the same name. It's a fairly dark uh, fantasy novel following Lyra and Will as they and their demons investigate the mysterious power of dust to liberate multiple worlds from the oppressive authority, all while going through adolescence. A series of books by Philip Pullman. Uh, He collaborates on the show with the show writer Jack Thorne, executive produced by Jane Tranter, Bad Wolf Studios in Wales for BBC One and HBO, where we watched it, uh, I presume. And uh, lastly... uh, this is a beloved book adaptation, so I just kind of wanted to get our general thoughts and history with the franchise out of the way. Uh, I'll go ahead and get myself out of the way first. Uh, we, uh, The Movie Gang Podcast reviewed season one uh, based on mostly on The Golden Compass, which is the better known uh, title. Uh, the first book in the in the trilogy uh, about almost exactly two years ago, in January 2019. And um, I was uh, a little more negative on on season one, just slightly. Uh, and I but I wanted said then I wanted to reread the books. I since have uh, I still have uh, some of the same kind of problems with the books I did with season one. I think I discovered they they are full of expository dialogue and and kind of preachy at times, but I still value them very much and am really invested in, in the franchise. It, it kind of like, the thing about those books, too, I think, is that they found me like at a time in my youth where like, like introduced me to kind of like uh, atheistic spirituality and philosophy. So I, I still really value them and I'm really interested in them. And uh, they also nurtured my lifelong interest in things like uh, witches and talking bears. So uh, <laughs> that's me and my general thoughts out of the way. Uh, Jenna wasn't with us last time. So Jenna, I kind of wanted to get your general take uh, history with the franchise, as well as your take on season one and season two, if you like. Yeah. Um, so I started reading these books. Um, I was given the Golden Compass as a very young child um, as a gift, and I loved them. Like, read them, you know, at least 15, 20 times each. Um, just devoured them because it's it, like it's great escapism, right? We all wish that we could jump into a different world where things are similar and some things are wildly different. Um, so I, I really love them. And then kind of interestingly, I once I found out that HBO would have a new series, because I will not speak of the original adaptation, which 
I was sorely disappointed and probably crushed by um, as a child. Um, but when I found out HBO was doing it, I was like, oh, well, second chance. And so I actually started um, reading the books to my partner. So I we just finished The Sudden Life um, this year. And so it's been kind of cool to see them as an adult because I, I probably haven't read them, the books, before this adaptation um, since I was a kid. And so to like your point, Trevor, about some of the flaws you've seen in the books that I do not remember as a child, I'm having that like that same experience of like, oh, this isn't quite as awesome as I remember, but I still like them. <laughs> so that's my lengthier than I expected. But that's my history with the series. And how did you like um, also like season one kind of compared to season two? Just real quick. Um, I actually like season one better than season two. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I also um, actually, when I reread the books recently, uh, kind of read them to my significant other as she fell asleep most of the time because it's just when we read and how that works out. But um, yeah, we, we enjoyed that that uh, that too. And oh. uh, Sarah, this is your game now. Go. I, uh, sorry. Just one thing. I have to like make fun of mine quickly. I corner mine. So I only read when we're driving to breweries generally or ah. just driving in general. So oh, he can't nice. fall asleep because he drives and I read. Um, and like sometimes I'll drive, obviously, and then I put the book down. But yeah, he has no option to sleep. I'm like, you must you must hear this. This is why I, you know, yell at the TV. <laughs> mm, nice. Nice. <laughs> Quite yell at the TV, I don't think, but I, yeah, we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> Sorry, Sarah, go ahead. All good, all good. This is great. Um, actually, yeah, now that I think about it, Jenna, I don't think I had ever really known your history with the books. I knew that you were watching the series and had read the books, but I am very happy to learn that um, you have devoted a great deal of time to reading <laughs> these books, as I have. I, too, was gifted the Golden Compass when I was a kid. I think I was in the fourth grade. <clears throat> and uh, my mom read all the books to me, which, looking back, that was very brave of her, and considering <laughs> their subject matter. And uh, I'm really pleased that she was not of the, you know, conservative, you know, Catholic religious sect that these books, you know, attack essentially. So that made it a lot better. But um, yeah, I reread uh, the original trilogy every two or three years. Um, I have read them within the last <clears throat> two years, I think, like right before the um, first season of the series got started. And I still love them. I too notice the, the the flaws that are present that you don't see until you're an adult. But quite <laughs> frankly, because I have such a, a deep and long attachment to them, I don't really care. I love them anyway. And they're really good. Um, I have also read um, the first two books in the Book of Dust trilogy, La Belle Sauvage and The Secret Commonwealth. Yeah, Jenna, I forgot about them? those. Yes, I, I didn't even face. think about that with my history because I don't I guess I associate his dark materials with my childhood and like right. the, the, the original three. Mm. But yeah, the, yeah, sorry that I'll just agree. Yeah. I've read those as well. <laughs> I'm excited mm. for the third. Me too. Uh, they're really great. I absolutely love The Secret Commonwealth and I really want to read like just that one again because it was it was really good. Um, but yeah, I was very excited about the first season, uh, just ex as excited about the second season. I do think that the first season was a bit more faithful to the book in general. Like they, they made some changes for um, writing purposes and stuff and as, as they did in the second season. Um, but there were some really profound acting moments 
in the second season that I thought just completely overtook the acting that we saw in season one. Not that it was bad. It just got better, which is really cool, which we will come to as we get to each of the episodes. Um, So as I think I said in uh, our cast about the first season, this is absolutely my favorite fictional universe above Harry Potter, above Star Trek, above Lord of the Rings, anything else like this. This is it for me. It had a, you know, a great, um, a profound aspect. Let me start over. It did a lot to shape my views of spirituality as a child. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know. It's. It's I think it found stuff. me too, like right at that time, because I was I was raised Methodist, and it, it did. Like, I, I wasn't ever like mm, that into it, you know. I, I was always kind of on the on the edge of uh, buying all of everything, but uh, yeah, I think I, I was also gifted the Golden Compass. Like it just came to me from a friend. Actually, now that I think of it, a friend whose parents were, I think, atheists and psychologists. Now, now that I don't know if I ever made, mm. the, I, I need to like confirm that. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, it also kind of found me at a time when like I hadn't like been exposed to a lot of those ideas otherwise. So I, st- I still really value it for that, for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. One thing yeah, that's kind of interesting. To- oh, sorry, go sorry, ahead, Janet. Oh, I was just going to say it's kind of interesting. So I like I went to Catholic school, um, raised in a religious home. Like my parents weren't Catholic until I was probably in like fifth or sixth grade. But um, so for me to read it young. I didn't really think about that before because my, my parents never were like, like read whatever you want to. It's good that you're reading, but that mm. is kind of, kind of funny. Like I was going to Catholic school and reading. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Sarah. That's okay. Oh, something that, that I found kind of interesting that was brought to my attention through um, his dark materials related podcasts that I've been listening to her dark materials and um, Slate's podcast, The Authority. Um, mm-hmm. the, they mentioned in those podcasts, or, or they they brought up the fact that while uh, it is these books are pretty clearly an attack on organized religion, specifically the Catholic Church, the New Testament, or like you know Christ and and all of that upon which obviously Christianity as a whole is based. None of that is actually brought up in any of the books. They do make references to the book of Genesis in the Bible, which also factors, factors of course, into the um, Jewish canon. Um, but they never actually attack like Christianity itself, which is like, oh, all these people get so mad about this. But right. It's more the institution. And right. Like- the, the interpretation of like sin being the problem. Like none of that are, th- those aren't really things that, I mean, I'm sure Christ talked about sin, but you know, it's, it's different he, than he the concept about, of originals. And well, right. Cause it's like his, that whole, the second, the new Testament was about forgiveness, right? Like, right. Exactly. We we're human. We make mistakes yet like love, which I would argue is supposed to be the root of religions. <laughs> love for each other is like that's what binds us and that's what makes forgiveness possible. And instead it is an attack on like original sin and how we get that out of our systems. Cause we are the worst things that have ever crawled around the earth. You know? Yeah. The authority really stands for like an institution, a institution that's like founded on fear and insecurity, I think more than anything else, which is like, 
why they're kind of boring on screen, arguably, I think. <laughs> like, I, I I love the design and, like, the trappings and everything of the Magisterium, especially, like, the really narrow windows. Everything's just really insular. Like, they're also narrow-minded. I love that. But I do kind of hate spending time there a little bit. Well, and they um, all have demon, or demons that are horrible, you know? Like, yeah, like they all, all have creepy crawlies and, and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I, I like uh, Father McPhail's little gecko demon. I think she's mm-hmm. cute. But yeah, every everything else is like when the like the spider demon crawled up the guy's arm. It's just like, nope, Mm-mm. I don't like you. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> okay, so uh, why don't we go ahead and dive into the meat of the episodes? There were seven episodes. Uh, in this season, as opposed to the eight from season one, there were supposed to be eight episodes in uh, season two. There was going to be another episode that focused pretty exclusively on Lord Asriel and uh, his works in the new world. But uh, unfortunately, they had to uh, cease filming for that episode because of the coronavirus. So of all the reasons to dislike the coronavirus and the pandemic, one of my main ones is that we didn't get the Lord Azrael episode and I am bitter. Specifically (laughs) more James McAvoy, who's pretty terrific in general and as as Azrael, I think. They did save, managed to save a little bit of that footage to put at the the end, at the finale where he he meets the angels. That, That is from like scrapped footage from that episode. And they talked about putting it in season three later, but I think they've since scrapped that idea too. They're like, oh, maybe someday. Well, Well, I I think if they had had that episode though, you start to see like what he's doing. So yeah, you see it at the end there, but like watching all these forces streaming to him from every universe, like that would have been cool just to see, I think. Mm -hmm. I think so too. Yeah. Uh, right. Okay. So, uh, starting with episode one, this one was called the city of magpies. And according to IMDB, this is the one where Lyra and will explore a new world. The magisterium take action on past events and Lee Scoresby embarks on a mission. Uh, I really liked this episode because, uh, even though we, of course, got to know Lyra very well in season one, and we got to meet Will as well in season one, which was um, a differentiation from the books. Um, of course, in the book, The Subtle Knife, that's the first time we see Will, and the first chapter or two is him you know, dealing with his um, mother's mental illness and accidentally killing the guy, although really it was the cat's fault. Because he tripped over the cat and fell down the stairs and that was it. And cat's, uh, then, uh, cat's always looking out for Will. Some cat yeah, is always looking out yeah, for yeah. yeah, gotta gotta love those cats. Um, but uh, in this episode, we do see Lyra and Will meet for the first time. And I absolutely love Amir Wilson and Daphne Keene's uh, on-screen chemistry. I think they were very well cast in their individual roles, but also playing uh, off of each other. What did you guys think? Yeah, I definitely like them together. I, I think they have chemistry that they've worked on for sure. Um, yeah, I, I think they're a good fit. I agree. Um, I think it's definitely well cast. I, I think, also so, really, go ahead, since, Jenna. Since we're talking about casting, and I I was not there for the first season, and since she comes up in this episode, the one thing I'll say about casting that drives me 
crazy about this whole series because when I was a kid and I was envisioning like what I would like to have seen them bring it to life, I always thought that Mrs. Coulter should be played by Marion Cotillard. And Ooh, she would have been really good. She would have been perfect. Absolutely <laughs> perfect. And so every time I see her on screen, like my heart just hurts a little bit because <laughs> I mean, she she does a good job. Like, she's menacing, she's conniving and persuasive. But just like Marion Cotillard, every time I see her, I'm like, you're not right. Mm-hmm. That That's my major problem with casting. I think generally, generally it works, but I got that out of my system now. How dare you? Ruth Wilson won a BAFTA for this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm making fun because I actually... Uh, aired this grievance in the first season that I, I've come to ex- accept that Ruth Wilson's take on Mrs. Coulter is, is, you know, she's a fair, perfectly capable actress and is, is nuanced and developed, but it's just not the take I want either. So uh, that's just, that, that, that's kind of a sticking point for me here in this season as well. But, um, Sarah, we were still on episode one, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, that's, that's totally fair. I'll go ahead and weigh in on Mrs. Coulter now. As well. Um, uh, I will say this is a roundabout way of getting to my point, but I do have one. Uh, One of the things that one of the many things that made me so mad about the terrible film that came out about, I don't know, what, 20 years ago? Whenever that 2007, was. I think it was. Like 2006 okay. or 2007. Okay. Yeah. 15 years ago, anyway. Was that, you know, the writing was trash. The animation was not that good. I guess maybe for the time it was, but, you know, looking back, it isn't anymore. But what made me so sad was I thought all of the casting for that film was spectacular. Everyone was exactly as I had pictured them to be. In the books, I think that was my introduction to Daniel Craig, actually, was as Lord Asriel. And I thought he did really well with that role. Um, Fuck, who played Lee Scoresby? What's his name? Sam Elliott is like the perfect Lee Scoresby in my head. And while I do think Lin-Manuel Miranda does a good job, no one else, like when I read the books, it's always going to be Sam Elliott in my head. I, right, I get said, that actually. Like yeah. I think that I like I I love Lin Manuel Miranda, so I can't ever hate on him. Mm-hmm. But is not quite the image that I thought of when I see him. Like even now when I'm reading out loud, still I don't see Lin Manuel Miranda. <laughs> this is my favorite as someone who does not particularly enjoy Lin Manuel as an actor. Renaissance man, yes, indisputable. But as an actor. Not my favorite. This is my favorite performance of his. It was a, especially in the context of season one, I was surprised by like what a note of levity he brought, he brought to it. And uh, apparently they, their thinking was based, basing him more on like when he was a uh, young Scoresby in like one of the prequels or something, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Philip Pullman has written, uh, I think three now, um, very short novellas, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. and one, the one that you're speaking of is called Once Upon a Time in the North. And it's um, the the journey upon which Lee Scoresby and York Bernison become friends. Um, and so you're exactly right, Trevor. I've heard that that was a lot of what they based uh, or um, Lin-Manuel Miranda's characterization of Lee Scoresby upon was the the younger, you know, more sort of rootin' tootin', shoot him up cowboy 
Um, <laughs> Root and Tootin is a pretty great way to describe what Manuel Miranda is like. <laughs> Just picture those words coming out of his mouth. Yep. <laughs> and uh, let's see, what else happened in this first episode before we... Well, I think the on. big change that to me was a little disorienting just because the implications later is that Seraphina is not the one who kills um, the witch being tortured by Mrs. Coulter. Right. And yes. while it's like, it seems like a minute thing, it really, to me, like when I saw what was happening, essentially Seraphina was not on that ship. I was like, huh, that's kind of an interesting thing because it creates, it creates a moment of rage for her, but later on in mm-hmm. the series versus like in the book she's just filled with passion of like this woman is the worst thing that's ever existed let me act um and that we don't really see that i don't i don't remember what episode we see it in but we don't see it until a couple in when seraphina really begins to develop that rage mm-hmm. and uh, as well in that scene they um introduce a cloud the cloud pine of the witches in a very different way from the book which i thought was <laughs> Actually really creative how it's like tattooed into their skin somehow. There's probably a better word for that. I just can't think of one right now. And it looks really cool. And for the way that they fly, I thought it would look cool. I think it looks (laughs) cool until you see the torture. So I I half agree with you. But then Mm -hmm. watching the torture became much more excruciating. (laughs) Yes. I'm sure they did that to get around like breaking fingers on screen. (laughs) Right. Yeah, yeah, that occurred to me too. Uh, this show has like been like kind of cautious around the uh, around the ratings uh, that it, maybe that it wants to receive too. I thought maybe that was a creative way to get around that too. Uh, yeah, I, I, I mixed feelings about that as well, but eh, it's kind of cool. I mean, they also just because of that just fly like with without any visible like aid. They just themselves are capable of propul- self propulsion essentially, which is eh, kind of cool. I don't know. I, I, I've gotten used to it. I think I complained about it season one, but it's, it's fine. It's whatever. It's I don't thing. really like it. Okay. Well, <laughs> that, never mind. I take it all okay. back. It's no, terrible. no, no. This is good. This is how we have discussions as we have differing opinions on things. It would be a very bo- boring podcast if we all agree. <laughs> um, see, reading the Wikipedia summary real quick. Oh, specters. Um, I don't think we, we see a specter at the very, very end of this episode, uh, kind of, you know, creepily materializing behind Will. But of course, it doesn't attack him yet because he's not old enough. Um, but oh, uh, yeah, that that is probably my only problem with that casting Mm-hmm. Is that he does not look like he's about to enter puberty? Like, I, I oh, no, he he's, his it. voice has already <laughs> dropped. Like he's there. He is well there. Yeah, Just like, wait until we get season three. In, and he's thirty they years old. They haven't started filming it yet because yeah, because of COVID. So yeah, He'll I did be not about remember when that, that comes out. It's fine. <laughs> right. Yeah, but I I did not remember that complaint until you brought up the specters, Sarah, because I, I generally yeah. think he does a great job and the chemistry is is wonderful. But when I first saw him, I'm like, and how do the specters not just devour him into the gods? And especially looking back, you think about um, 
Tony Costa, who, you know, they have that, you know, demon settling ceremony with Egyptians or whatever. Will definitely looks at least the same age, if not older than Tony Costa. His right. demon definitely would have settled by now. But whatever, it's fine. Art and stuff. Also, a little thing that I noticed in the first episode is the voice actor who uh, plays the role of Pan is uh, starting to hit puberty himself. I was like, oh, Pan's voice is dropped. Oh, (laughs) just a little thing. But I just I noticed it. I was like, they're growing up. (laughs) I did not. I don't know if that's like intentional that, you know, Lyra's growing up and therefore so is Pan or if it was just. You know, the actor who plays him is uh, hitting puberty. (laughs) Yeah, it's cute. And I like the relationship that Will and Pan develop over the the season. I think it's quite sweet. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I do like that. Yeah. All right. Episode two, which is called The Cave. This is the one where we... This, This is the one where we meet Mary Malone, right? Yep. Yeah. Episode two. Uh, the IMDb summary says Lyra and Will head to Oxford for answers and the magisterium is faced with a choice. So that's not very helpful. But yeah, I adore Simone Kirby as Mary Malone so much. I, I think as as uh, we've, we've talked about earlier, she's not how I pictured Mary Malone. I think in the books, I, she's describing as having like dark hair or something. But Simone Kirby is just so good. <laughs> So Mary Malone is my favorite character in the books, probably one of them, if not the, she is just such a, just, just a nice like note of, of just brevity and levity and sorry, I'm confusing my words, but you know, you know what I mean? She's just, she's just so fun and funny and her seeing her react to all of the epicness and the world ending stakes is just so refreshing. And I do love the actress and her performance here. I, I don't think they give I was I was a little disappointed right away that they didn't give her a little bit more of that to work with, I felt. But I, I like her relationship with her sister and that who who is religious and that I think that's yeah, kind of the I most fun she's able to have with it early with on. She gets like, more like opportunity does a great job as we get but farther into Not what I pictured, I but not really in a bad way. It's not like every time I see her I don't have the same like gut wrench as when I see Mrs. Coulter. Um but she she does a good job and it's just nice, like especially you know, obviously all of us have read the books, knowing how much of a role she'll have in season three. It, it's kind of exciting to watch her develop and move. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, one of my biggest I don't worries know how they will. Um, as we approach season three is I hope they give do the Mulefa justice. I mean, because Sarah, we've been saying since season one, that's like the impossible task that we can't I wait know. to watch the wrestle with. Like, it's, I don't. It's going to be It'll so be much like money and visual level catastrophe if like they do just it as right. bad as that 2007. Mm-hmm. Like, and if they don't, be what it's going to be a series, catastrophe. I think. And so. honestly, I don't have high hopes that they're going to do it right, but I'm an idealist, yeah. so I have to hope that they'll do it right. I just have. <laughs> Well, it's Me okay too. if it tanks the series because by then they'll be done. So. That's true. 
Uh, they have confirmed that um, the third book will be, or I like season two. three is it. Like they're done oh. after that. They're not going to split the third book into two seasons as I had hoped they would. Oh no, I totally disagree. I think, thank God for me. I mean, I'm the one who's like, hate watching well, this a I, little bit and like, you're just needing to see it through. So like, I'm I a little biased, disagree. but like, Honestly, uh, there's like, so, so there's I think padding this season this was season over padded, bit, which is why I like didn't like it as much it, as the first just, one. I but I also think that there's so much that happens in the third book that there's no way they can do it justice yes. in barely over one book or barely over one season like even if they do the full eight season or geez i can't speak today the full eight episodes mm. um it like there's so much to cover like there's so much nuance to cover that i just don't see that happening and so i agree this one was mm. was padded out like especially uh Sarah, when you started talking about season or geez, see, I cannot speak. When you started talking about episode two, to me, this was kind of like a padded episode, like, oh, like some beautiful shots, but no, 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 you're good. That was I was going out on a but. I actually like a lot of the sorry, I'm interrupting. I, I like a lot of the new, the actual added scenes, I think, uh, of some of the things they add and invent for the show. I really like uh, the witch trial in this scene. This, this episode is not one of them. Um, it's just I, for, it's not like it's per, like particularly long chunk of the episode or anything. It's just, you know, fleshing out a little bit more that we didn't really need. Like, I get that it's the church and they're evil and they hate witches and I don't need to see like a whole witch trial. I don't know. I, I have the crucible. I have other things that are more about that. Like I get that. It's just also the bombing of the witch's territory. I was legitimately confused what the stakes were there. Like the witches have been set up as so nigh and vulnerable in this show that I was like, are the witches there? Are they active? Like I, I, I think we're meant to believe they're succeeding and killing witches, but like, no. I, I, I was confused by that too I guess because the rating, I don't know, part of the like, problem is, is like just their homeland? they have not made How the witches the, like the extremely powerful and empowered species that they're represented in the book. Um, Cause I agree. Like, how that how that how they show the bombing it basically is like four witches survive mm -hmm. and they're all what? furious and sad. Whereas like you didn't see this coming. It's not like. It's not like a nuclear airhead was shot oh, and like okay. Yeah, I guess, no one saw that coming yeah. either. Like these are still this is more of a primitive world than what we live in currently. And somehow <laughs> Right. Right. They're zeppelins. They they're not exactly moving at light speed. Right. Right. They're yeah, they're not ICBMs. Yeah, I guess I just because like in season one, when Serafina alone takes out all of Bolvinger is kind of what I'm talking about to where I think the witches are more powerful than what they are in the book. But you also make a good point that like they can just have four left and it's enough to still be significant in the show because the clans are pretty much obliterated, I guess, is what we're supposed to take from that. So we don't really have like the witches council and the politics and everything that we did in the book, at least not yet. Well, there there was like the the one um, scene in the first episode that I forgot to mention while we were there, where uh, Lee Scoresby attends the Council of Witches. It's very oh, yeah. brief. It's yeah. a short scene, but um, you know, Ruta Scotty goes to um, rescue the witch who has been taken captive. But there's this 
you know, whole argument between Ruta Scotty and Serafina, like, you know, you're not taking enough action. Well, you're taking too much action and this and this and this. And- you're right. I, I totally <laughs> forgot. I'm sorry. Is, maybe is, is a bit of a testament to how that scene went. If we all forgot to talk about it in the first episode. <clears throat> what did we, what do we think of uh, the cave, uh, the way that Mary Malone uh, speaks to dark matter or dust? Uh, as with the production values in general and the design of the show, I love the cave. I, I love that it's like the particles on the screen, but they leap out of the screen. I, you know, it's it's taking liberty with the yeah, book. I would generally agree with that. Like, it, and it, it makes it work cool. for film better. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In uh, in the books, um, it, for those of you who have not read them, uh, instead of the dust like speaking audibly to Mary Malone, um, mm. she essentially sets up like a, you know. Python code system of, you know, she types in a question to the computer and then the dust responds with text, which works really well in a text medium. But Trevor, as you said, for, um, you know, to give it a bit more gravitas in a visual medium, I, I do like what they've done with it. And the voice of the, you know, uncountable billions, as they call it, beings of dust, um, I thought was very cool. And uh, it definitely dragged um, my fiance in. She, like your partners, has not read the books, uh, but she has been watching the show with me. So it's very frustrating when I'm just looking like, oh, this is a reference to something, but I can't tell you what it is. Read the books. Um, but oh, my, she, my partner has actually read the books. <laughs> oh, cool. Good. Yeah. She's, she's run up on our That's uh, I. Yeah, I don't I don't envy you that tension. That's that's mm-hmm. rough. But she was she was really there for it when Mary Malone asked, you know, why why have you been why did you meddle in human evolution? Why have you been, you know, essentially <laughs> stalking us for thousands of years? And they just say vengeance and they leave it off there. Katie was like, I'm here for this. I did love this that. This is great. <laughs> Uh, what else happens in this episode? Uh, I liked, I think it was an added scene where Will goes to his grandparents for help and they call the fucking police on him. The oh, yeah. I, I, I thought that I, was... Um, I thought that that really felt more just like padding to okay. me, like filler. Okay. Like, so, I, I, it worked and I saw because mostly it just set up it, this but they could have continuous like drumbeat of like Will is on his own. Like he's had to yeah, survive his whole life take care of his mom and even though his grandparents were wealthy because that that is in the books i believe like he's aware of wealthy grandparents on his dad's side um but it's like to me to me it was just padding and it was really just like oh let's let's remind you that will had a really tough childhood (laughs) yep yeah, and then we get the whole, uh, I think the other significant plot line maybe in this episode sure, was <laughs> Miss Coulter manipulating like Father McPhail into becoming Cardinal so that she can blackmail him, mm-hmm. uh, which I think was also new. I don't, I don't love the logic of that, but fine, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, uh, 
I, I think I like Ruth Wilson as Mrs. Coulter more than you guys do. <laughs> I seem to have gotten that vibe. Um, again, nothing, nothing wrong with the idea of Marion Cotillard as Mrs. Coulter. She would have been fantastic. Um, but I do really like what Ruth Wilson is doing with, with the role. And she had this, you know, very <laughs> ominous line of, you know, I've created a web in which you are both the spider and the fly. And I, I don't know. I, I liked that writing, I guess. And she's like, cool, I have got you in a position of power. And now you're going to do whatever I tell you or else I'm going to tell them all <laughs> that you killed the cardinal or something, whatever. It's a perfect did. transition and to episode I, three. I like Mrs. Coulter empowerment scenes. Mm. I think they're good. I'm into them. Yes, but real quick, this is also the one where people who have not read the books won't get this. Spoilers abound, by the way. I don't think we mentioned that at the beginning of this cast. We are the so sorry. Worst. This I mean, is not a spoiler here for free. season two of this show. I feel like you've probably read the third book. I, 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 I don't know. If you don't, I don't care. Katie doesn't understand why this bench made me cry. Oh. Where Will and Lyra go sit on a bench in Tannet Gardens in Oxford. It's not the right bench because I've been to that bench and that is not it. But uh, yeah, it's just, you know, foreshadowing. And if you know what's coming, you were screaming on the Internet after it was over, like myself. Um, so, yes, right. is there wait, I'm curious, is, is there like a bench like it's obviously the bench they were talking about in the book and you, you can go and it's, and it's there and it's, it's still the same. It's like really, Oh my gosh, that's they awesome. Have I had no idea. Statue with um, Pantalaimon and oh. Kirjava's final forms uh, near the bench. Oh, yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. That's great. I, I have, I went, when I went there, it was before they built that statue. So I haven't seen the statue, but I've seen pictures after the statue was installed. I'm like, yes, I have pictures at that bench. This was it. Uh, Philip Pullman does a pretty good job in the third book of describing very specifically where in the Botanic Gardens <laughs> that bench is. And also when I went to go sat on it, a whole I bunch of the people had like scribbled a, into it like great, great thing Will and Lyra and stuff like that. It was really cute. <laughs> mm. I will find um, internet pictures of the statue later. Because I, I, I also want to just look at it again. Because it's neat. Okay, transitioning into episode three. Here we go. This episode is called Theft. Oh, we didn't mention also in this episode briefly that uh, Lyra meets a gentleman named um, Charles Latram in the museum in Wills, Oxford. But we know him as Carlo Boreal, who has developed a um, an Our World persona and made a lot of money by stealing uh, various artifacts from around the world or from his world, perhaps. We don't really know where he got them or how he came by them, but it's sketchy. He's got like an astronaut suit in there. I don't know. But he's all these things. So episode three. He's so F. much shit. Yeah. So much shit. Uh, Lyra ignores the alethiometer's advice, leading to dangerous consequences. So in this episode, uh, Lyra goes back to um, speak to Mary Malone some more and maybe do some more work with the cave. Uh, however, when she gets there, uh, this shady policeman has 
also gone to speak to Mary Malone and Mary can tell right away that something is wrong. And uh, Lyra essentially ends up being found out and uh, runs away, being chased by the policeman and is, quote unquote, rescued by Charles Latram. And he, you know, drives her away and she gets out of his car later and realizes so at, too late after he's driven off. This episode has my favorite part of the season two in it. Oh, no. And then it has this part, which you're talking about, Sarah, which is just incomprehensible because with Lord Boreal not driving it's a ridiculous scene or <laughs> excuse me with with Lord Boreal driving it's a ridiculous scene like Lyra has she's survived so far because she's <laughs> extremely resilient and she's a survivor like she gets through a lot of very tight situations but somehow she leaves her most prized possession in the backseat of a car where she's sitting alone and it killed me inside like it was just ridiculous because because at least like in the books when lord boreal's sitting in the back with her and he makes her climb over him <laughs> that makes sense that he can just like quick fingers you know but with him with him driving i was just i was very irritated Yeah. I disagree. I think this is a little bit of a nitpick, <laughs> considering how many legitimate adaptation <laughs> problems there are for me in this show. But I did, I, I did like feel something there, Jenna, where I was like, "Huh." I remember that going differently. So yeah, I guess, I guess a problem is a problem. Mm. I think what's just annoying to me is, as Jenna mentioned, is that Lyra left her rucksack in the car when it not only <laughs> contains the alethiometer, but until right before she got in the car contained her demon as well. So, and that was something else that bothered me was that yeah. as they were driving away, he just, you know, <laughs> turned into a magpie and then was flying behind the car. That was very yeah. stressful for me. Cause like, what if he makes a sharp turn and they get separated? That's not a good thing. Well, at least they panned to Lyra's face to make it clear it was stressful for her, too. But yes. Yeah, but yeah, it's maybe maybe some odd choices there. Mm. Mm-hmm. And this is also the episode where we see a bit more of Lee Scoresby. He's traveled to uh, somewhere called Yenisei. I'm not quite sure where in the world that's I supposed love, to be. Maybe Russia? I guess it's this episode. I love, I love this scene. Sorry, in Russia? I think so. I think. I just love this scene. This is the pit, the peak of like Lin Manuel getting to be Lee Scoresby. This where he goes to the bar, like yes, like in a western because he's a cowboy to find out information. And I've done this in D and D like three times and fucked it up at least as many. And I'm just sitting there <laughs> watching that scene, like you know, I guess this is just how you found shit out back in the day, and it was really fraught and unreliable and just as dangerous as it is in every movie. Because <laughs> like I don't know, I was. That was fun. Mm-hmm. And uh, after he's in the bar through a series <laughs> of events, uh, he ends up getting captured in the interest of time. He gets captured and they have added a scene in which he is. It starts out that he's getting interrogated no. by Mrs. Coulter, which is an interesting directorial choice because I don't think in the books that they ever meet at all. And this is the only time that they meet no. in the show as well. But I don't know. I've heard different differing opinions of this scene. I thought it fell a little bit flat, but 
uh, on the other hand, you know, seeing these two pretty solid I'll actors let you go first, Trevor, together is, is just a neat is the scene that I'm on this cast for. Oh, oh wow. Wow. okay. Oh, this is gonna be good. Yeah, this I, I I feel I feel it. This uh, me and my fiance both like her, her maybe more than I. Uh, we're like, wow, that that's actually was pretty good. I don't, I don't know, like as an added scene that came out of nowhere with these two characters that don't meet in the book. Uh, I, I I see where you're coming from, Sarah, with it falling flat on like as usual with this show with the writing. I don't think they had great, you know, any anytime mm-hmm. two characters mm-hmm. just kind of spontaneously bring up their childhood trauma is kind of like, what? How did we get here? All this kind of thing. But like, I like the idea of that scene and I think they both chew the shit out of it. And it's kind of the highlight for me, especially for Ruth Wilson and in like kind of the territory that I, I think that it kind of, it's a scene that finds like acting levels throughout yeah, and is I, like seems I, like a real conversation like, especially the part the about time, ruth wilson because so. as i made that clear very not, true i not agree who i would have cast um but i i do think she did a really good job and i i even even though i do think it fell flat in some ways like it was kind of although like especially for this series it was a longer um like a longer moment in time it's still like it, it's I think that it was beautifully done. Like it actually provides some kind of humanity to Mrs. Coulter, which I think was a good thing. Um, I think that it provide. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then I ex- also think it kind of provides humanity to Lee Scoresby. Um, Badly otherwise, needed. he's just, you know, this Texas yeah. cowboy figure who like manages to love Lyra as his own daughter. Um, but you kind of see a little more of like who he is and then why his mom's ring becomes important. You see that dichotomy between his parents. Um, the other thing I like, I, I, I really thought this was the best scene of the whole um, second season, just cause it, it was new. It was, it provided that really, really needed humanity. Um, and it made me like, it, it was just powerful. Like you have these two people who, feel certain ways about Lyra, <laughs> no matter their biological relationship to her. Um, but they both like, it, it was just, it was, it was very strong to me. And I also like that, like, it's the one moment of intimacy you, be- you see between Mrs. Coulter and her demon. Um, and I, I actually liked that too. Cause, cause I like, I mean, obviously they make the gold monkey this way, but like what yes. a little evil creature, mm-hmm. but all mm-hmm. of a sudden you see him like, like offering empathy, um, which is not not something that you see in the books until like <laughs> book three, which I'm I know we've you know spoiled everything. Oh, yeah. But like you see a moment of empathy in book three from Gold, the Golden Monkey. And other than that, it's just like this like real nasty little thing. Um, and I, I did like that. <laughs> I thought it was a really powerful scene. And they like it showcased both of the actors well. Mm-hmm. That's true. And actually, this this season of the TV show is the first time <laughs> in any occurrence of this story that I have <laughs> felt sympathy for the golden monkey. Like, I feel bad for everything that happens to the poor little bastard. You know? 
Especially for a scene that we'll get to later. I kind of think, when, like, to uh, that point, Sarah, and you really world, start to see it. And she just, just leaves him after this scene with Lisa. At Gordon. the house. But the relationship with Mrs. Coulter and her demon mm-hmm. is kind of disturbing. Like, it, it's not like, I don't remember it. And I mean, I just, like I said, I finished the, the subtle knife this year. So I don't oh, remember yeah. it. Like, but it's like pretty cruel and sick in this show. And it really starts to devolve after this beautiful moment of empathy um like it, it gets yeah it gets weird <laughs> exact well mm-hmm. it's a, it really makes me think of the hyena demon in um la belle sauvage it's that same kind of relation so it's very similar yeah, relationship. i would agree it's with not that. quite like that degree that, of madness i don't think it. but severe sociopathy absolutely can you be a sociopath towards <laughs> no, like, like abusing your own soul when it's a physical manifestation of your own soul? does that count as sociopathy Or imagine, Sorry, I'm just you know, on. yeah, no, I mean, this, there could seriously. be, there, there, wait, I could do my own <laughs> podcast on, you know, the representation of demons and the representation of various mental illnesses, mm-hmm. like sociopathy or anxiety or depression or, mm. you know, all sorts of things. That'd be a really interesting study, even though they're not real, but they're <laughs> an interesting yeah. construct through which you can process mental and emotional things mm. i feel anyway uh however i felt about the um mrs coulter and lee scoresby scene i do think it worked a lot better than the random scene that we have between seraphina peckles <laughs> and york bernison where yeah. they essentially just say like lord asriel caused global warming what do we do I, I found it interesting as well that they would spend so much money on this one scene where every single character in it is uh, computer generated. Mm. The scenery was pretty. Anyway, uh, and at the end of this episode, uh, Lord Boreal makes a deal with Lyra and Will that he will return the alethiometer to them if they can get him this knife that is kept in the Tower of the Angels in Chitagatse. Um, so episode four is called Tower of the Angels, and it starts with a very Lord of the Ringsy voiceover about uh, the subtle knife and who made it and why they made it and, you know, um, how they, you know, above all else, desire power and how it became just this, you know, used for bad things and therefore bad things like the specters happened. Um, The IMDb IMDb summary is not at all helpful. It says, Will and Lyra make a plan unaware of the dangers or the cost involved. (laughs) That's not helpful at all. So anyway, weird um, Lord of the Rings uh, intro. Go ahead, Trevor. I was just saying I didn't not like that uh, very much. There's some weird thing in there too, where they bring up like, Atoms, where I guess they're trying to draw the nuclear weapon metaphor, maybe, that made me kind of scratch my head. I don't quite remember, but I also recognize that this is a result of them having, like, that canceled episode where they were planning on explaining some of this. So, 
give him a pass, I guess. Mm-hmm. A lot of this exposition would have taken place in the context of the Lord Asriel episode. So I'm sure they thought, well, we can't do this episode, so we got to fit it in somewhere. Mm-hmm. It is yeah. just a shame because I remember us saying the same thing about uh, the exposition prologue at the beginning of the first season. This like mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings-ish, but not as cool as Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. It also reveals very early on that um, no, that's correct because it's this like is this how Spectre shocking moment created, to which Will I don't think is revealed in the books until like the third book. Yeah. Is that right? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. This is for our benefit. Though. I mean, he still <laughs> right. Yeah, that's true. But it won't mean as much when he finds out because the audience knows now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nah. Uh, let's see. This is also the episode <laughs> where we meet um, Stanislaus Grumman slash Joe Parry slash John Perry, who is Will's father. Uh, Lee Scoresby finally finds him and is played by, is his name Andrew Scott or Adam yeah. Scott? I think Andrew Scott, yeah. who played Moriarty in... Um, Stephen Moffat's uh, Sherlock. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was wondering how this would go over since I love that show and his performance Moriarty in it, which is a very big, hammy performance to see him do like, ooh, shaman powers. I don't know. It works. It's fine. I, yeah. yeah. Odd choice a little bit, I, I still think, but I, I was perfectly happy with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do like the interaction between uh, him and uh, <laughs> Miranda. I think they do a good job. Screen with his yeah. little Sokka ponytail. Sokka <laughs> ponytail. You know Sokka from Avatar The Last Airbender? John Perry has the same hair. Oh, sorry. that <laughs> I was not getting there. Thank you. It's yeah. okay. <laughs> and yes, as you said, um, uh, when we were talking about, uh, or in the previous episode, um, he summoned, even though Lee has been looking for him, uh, Joppery says that he summoned Lee with his mother's ring. So as we mentioned before, that was the significance of, you know, how attached Lee was to his mother over his father. And uh, yeah, he needs help uh, finding the subtle knife so he can take it to Lord Azrael to help him in his war. Which we're still learning more and more about that every now and then. Uh, let's see. Oh, this is where uh, Will gets the knife. So Will and Lyra go up the Tower of the Angels and they encounter Giacomo Paradisi, who is far too British for that name. He does a wonderful job, but anybody named Giacomo Paradisi needs to have a bit more of an Italian accent. That's just my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, Will fights Tulio, who has uh, is is keeping Giacomo Paradisi prisoner, so he can steal the knife, which will protect him from specters. Tulio is the older brother of two characters that we forgot to mention in episode one: uh, Angelica and Paola in the TV show. She's Paolo in the books, a little boy, but 
minor change, whatever. It doesn't affect the flow of the story too much. And Angelica is played by Bella Ramsey, who very famously played Lady Mormont in Game of Thrones. And she as, is just as intimidating except, and terrifying that in be this show for the as she was life, in Game like. of Thrones. And I love it. Because <laughs> I thought the same thing on. when I first, when she first Which came on the screen. Green. I was like, oh, oh my gosh, this is awesome. And then she <laughs> is true. as terrifying as one would expect. Um, but yeah, she's, she's definitely stuck in that now. <laughs> yep. I'm cool with it. She does well. Uh, and so uh, Will fights Tulio and in the process loses two of his fingers, which Giacomo Paradisi later tells him that uh, fighting for the knife and losing uh, your fourth and fifth fingers on your hand is a mark that you are meant to be the knife bearer, which this whole scene I thought was very, very faithful to the books. And uh, I really appreciated how it was done. I like the little um, bit where Tulio just like wildly swings the knife and without meaning to just slices through this like bronzed angel figure, like it's butter. He doesn't even notice that he does it, which is a good demonstration of how powerful even the, you know, more earthly side of the knife is. And we learn of course, later that the other side of the knife um, cuts windows between worlds, dimensions, universes, however you want to call it. And yes. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> um, and then after the fight's over, Tulio runs away, terrified that the specters are going to get him, which they probably are, even though he and Will look about the same age, but we've had that discussion already. Um, and Paradisi very quickly teaches Will how to use the knife. And uh, we have a special little moment, which does happen in the books, and I'm glad they included it in the show where uh, Will is, you know, overcome with pain and can't focus on uh, or can't concentrate to use the knife to find the little strings between worlds. And Pan just comes up as a little red panda, just like gently nudges his hand, which not supposed to do because you're not supposed to touch other people's demons. But Pan and Lyra's logic is that, well, Will doesn't have a demon and he needed comfort. But then there's also, of course, the other side of it of, wow, Lyra must really like Will if she's that comfortable with, you know, part of her soul. I think soul. to me that scene fell touching a little flat, him, Physically though. touching him um, for comfort. Like, again, I, it was still touching, but I think this. in the book, I really read it as like, it's just this moment where yeah. Lyra stares at Pan and he just keeps nuzzling Will because Will is like needs to focus, is extremely upset, emotionally distraught, physically distraught. Um, and so to me, it just wasn't as powerful as I'd hoped, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Trevor? Oh, um, I thought it was fine. I don't know. I That's probably another thing that's hard to adapt, honestly, is... Uh, well, I did react to it again to Jenna's credit kind of being different and be like, hmm, okay. Yeah. Different. Uh, where <laughs> she says like, pan, what are, you, what are you doing? It's like very different than having someone just frozen in fear. Like, Oh, that's, that's taboo. We, we don't, we don't do that. Like that's, but I can see how internally, you know, that's hard to convey. Maybe you know, how uh, I, I, I don't know. Not, not, not strong preference for that. Yeah. 
Um, um, it does. I do really like, sorry, real quick. I do. I did really, I am really glad they realize how cool the subtle knife is and that they throw it into the wall and things all the time that it slices through like butter. It's a very cool effect. And uh, I think they took full advantage of it throughout the show. It's starting with this episode and I really loved that. So me too. And there's during the fight, I think it just kind of gets tossed into the air and it lands in the floor. Mm, like just floor. goes several yeah. inches into the floor and it's cool. And I really like the design of the knife as well. Um, I, I like how they have differentiated the two edges that do the two different things. I like the, the coloring of the special blade. It yeah. And they keep good. it simple. Like you get the yeah. idea that it's kind of a humble object with not too much fanfare about it. And they, they kind mm-hmm. of worked the general design of the, the tower of the angels into it, which I really love by mm-hmm. the way, how the tower vanishes to a, like a, a there's probably a term for it, like an infinity point kind of twist spiral thing. I, I really love that. Yeah, me too. The tower looks really good. And okay, so after, you know, Lyra and Will get the knife, then they, of course, have to decide what to do with it because they do need to get the alethiometer back. But Will is connected to this knife now. So obviously they're not going to give it directly into Charles Latram's hands. Uh, But at the very end of this episode, uh, Boreal um, gets in touch with Mrs. Coulter and they go have dinner together in uh, her their world. And uh, there is what I I thought was a good visual parallel in this scene where Boreal is very clearly, as he has done several times before, uh, creepily hitting on (laughs) Mrs. Coulter. And uh, he like holds her hand and is talking about, I can take you to this brave new world and I can reunite you with your daughter and we'll rule together or something or whatever. And Boreal's demon, snake demon, like comes out of his sleeve and is getting very close to touching Mrs. Coulter's hand. But it is very clear from Mrs. Coulter's standpoint that this would not be a welcome touch like (laughs) Pan touching will was in the sense of cup bad snake touch bad snake touch yes very bad and obviously mrs coulter and uh the monkey are not at all happy about this interaction but they recognize it as an opportunity because they do in fact follow boreal uh from their world through chitagatse into will's hour oxford which leads us into episode five the scholar um, which is a very big episode for Mrs. Coulter and Ruth Wilson. This is the one where Will and Lyra set out to retrieve what's been lost and Mary takes a leap of faith. So this episode, I just said, it's very important for Mrs. Coulter. And that is because she goes into, uh, again, our world and sees all these women, whether it's the random woman with a baby in a stroller who's simultaneously having coffee with her friends and doing work on her laptop. And, you know, so therefore, you know, she's a mother, but she also has friends, but she also has a job and is successful and, you know, no husband in sight. So she's doing this on her own, but she still makes her own way in the world. And she also meets with Mary, Dr. Mary Malone and sees that she's um, been published multiple times And uh, she says to Boreal at one point that, 
you know, she was never allowed, she was allowed to be a female scholar, but was never issued the title of doctorate, even though she was, you know, the top of her class and everything. And she wrote hundreds of research papers, but they would never get published unless a man could attach his name to it and say that he had written it and she was his assistant or something of that nature. So further illustrating uh, in this retelling, especially how, well, I like to say backwards that stuff like that still does happen in our world. Let me be very clear, but we're getting better. (laughs) And uh, Lyra's world is further behind ours in terms of, you know, yeah, feminism so I actually, I, I kind of liked that part about this episode. Um, all of those. Like Mrs. Coulter is just for me a hard character to like. She's pretty, pretty evil. Um, but it like it again, like it had a moment where I had empathy for her. Um, part of that's just like mm-hmm. I work in an extremely male dominated field. And then like I just completed a course on women in leadership. Um, and so it's like I've been thinking a lot about those things. Cause, so it's like the primacy thing, you know, like what's what's the top of your mind? And for me, it has been that kind of dynamic. And so watching her like just complete envy over what she could have had had she been born somewhere else um, and knowing like especially for for, you know, like Lyra's origin story where it's like Mrs. Coulter married really rich and cheated on her husband and was shunned by everyone um, and then still clawed her way back to the top where like, you know, according to this series, she still couldn't publish something under her own name, but she still has a lot of power and influence. Like it does speak something to her just like indomitable spirit, you know? So I, I kind of liked those scenes where it's just like you're watching Mrs. Coulter like, well, damn. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I love that where she looks out of the window and basically I just I, I, I'm pretty sure I remembered in my mind that the woman is on a laptop and has like a baby and is on the phone to somebody else at the same time. But I just remember that she's wearing jeans and <laughs> just like, oh, oh yeah. for a world with jeans. I, I don't know. It's just <laughs> uh, that's ridiculous. I'm sorry. I've, no, uh, I mean, but, it, it does come into play later. Which, sorry, go You know, ahead. they say genes brought down communism. I, I don't know if that's <laughs> true, but um, yeah, the spirit of the thing. Anyway, I I do love that um, as much as we, you know, uh, as we have different takes on Mrs. Coulter's adaptation here. I absolutely love everything about what they do with her in this episode and play that up. Um, and I think it leads really well into... Um, <laughs> Lord Boreal's like absolute just fruitless attempts to woo her. I, it, I that's a, that's this episode, right? I mean, oh yeah, where he's like playing that like nineties <laughs> British soul band over the loudspeaker. Yeah, like, I forget what it's called, but I see a lot of memes Sit on my couch, it. listen to these speakers, look at my stuff. Like this is all about me. Aren't you impressed? And he just totally, and she even kind of gives him a slight chance and he just totally continues to underestimate her. You know, like Jenna was saying, she like raises the subject <laughs> and he just, he can't, he can't fucking conceive of a woman as it. He's like, oh yeah, I think you're my equal. And it's just like, Ugh. oh, oh, I, I love it. I love every minute of that. That that was actually kind of honestly, like, especially in terms of added scenes, <laughs> fleshing out this relationship between <laughs> Lord Boreal and Mrs. Coulter, which we don't see in the books. Like, they're, they're just all of a sudden, like, hooked up whatever they're doing in cahoots at 
Sorry, obviously not really hooked up, but at, at, at well, Will, Will and Lyra just find them I keep, we don't know, at, at, at the house and they're having a conversation like they've already done all this. And I really that's that's one of my favorite added elements of the season. Honestly, one of my favorite parts watching the season is Lord Brielle just fucking <laughs> not getting it <laughs> and just watching Mrs. Coulter think about killing him because yeah, we know that happens, you know. So, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is also the one where Mary finishes our conversation with the cave and it tells her that uh, you must play the serpent, which is more uh, biblical uh, language, of course, uh, whether the casual viewer has realized that yet or not. Um, and so then it, you know, shuts itself off in, in a very, it appears very final the way it shuts itself off. Like we're done working here. <laughs> leave us alone we'll we'll talk to you again in another world um and so mary goes off or to or presumably goes home to pack a bag to oh and it it tells her she must deceive the guardian which she does at uh the end of the episode uh and we'll get there when we get there um so yeah will and lyra develop a plan to cut their way into boreal's house essentially by like finding the right place in Chittagatse that matches up with that place in Will's Oxford. So they can just kind of like sneak in, grab the alethiometer, close the window and run away. Uh, but of course that wouldn't be interesting if it all just went to plan as simply as that. Um, so they go in and of course they get caught. And um, we, we have here the added element of uh more of a physical conflict with Mrs. Coulter and Lyra and like Will sees Mrs. Coulter and the golden monkey, which might affect the beginning of season three a little bit, but again, we'll get there when we get there. Um, because now Mrs. Coulter knows what Will looks like. Um, but uh, we haven't talked a lot about Daphne Keene yet in this episode. It's because it is very Coulter centric, but I thought Daphne Keene really shown in this episode very well and uh i love the the demon fight between pantalaimon and the golden monkey and i love 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 daphne keen's face acting during that moment because you can tell how angry she is and also scared not only of the situation but also a bit horrified at herself because she wants to be nothing like mrs coulter is and yet this is exactly what mrs coulter did to her back in uh, the apartment in the first season. And uh, I don't know. I just, I was, I was really blown away by Daphne's performance in this scene. Yeah, I agree. I thought it was really effective. Yes. Um, and anyway, they, they get the alethiometer by the skin of their teeth. Like Will closes up the window and the monkey just misses flying through it and goes crashing into, you know, some of more of Boreal's artifacts. Um, he cuts one as a threat. <laughs> yeah, that was great. This one that he had shown to Mrs. Coulter earlier was like, this is worth tens of thousands of pounds. And Will's just like, I'm going to slice this in half like a stick of butter <laughs> because I can. Um. Boreal tells Mrs. Coulter that there's these terrible things called specters in Chittagatse, um, but she has this devious look about her as, as though she's going to figure out a way to 
you know, get the upper hand and see what can what could she do with that kind of power at her disposal. Then at the very end, Mary Malone uh, finds the guardian that the the cave, the dust mentioned, and it's just the security guard who's guarding this tent. And uh, she tries to get through, and at first he doesn't let her until he starts to think that she's <laughs> maybe Mrs. Coulter because she mentioned Lord Boreal's name, and she's like, "Yes, I am Mrs." Coulter and you know Carlo will be along shortly he's like right off you go then and so she just walks through this tent and uh through the window that Boreal has been using to travel between worlds and uh Mary finds herself in Chitagatse which that's that's a, a pretty spot-on interpretation yeah. from the book they um she she doesn't pretend to be Mrs. Coulter specifically but I thought it worked for this scene that they just, you know, put all of this in um, Boreal's name and that's how she got away with it. All right. Episode six is called Malice. Uh, Lyra and Will find allies who can help them in their search for Will's father. The Magisterium learns something shocking and Mrs. Coulter meets a formidable foe. Uh, so in this one, uh, the witches see angels flying overhead, which we don't see them in the, you know, traditional angelic shape, like with the wings and so forth just yet. They just sort of appear as these lights in the sky. And um, again, something that I think would have happened in the lost episode with Lord Asriel, I imagine that Ruta Scotti would have had more of an opportunity to speak directly with the angels as she does in the book. And again, more exposition is, is given there. So yet another missed opportunity for that. Um, and uh, Ruta Scotti goes to follow them uh, with the hopes of finding Lord Asriel by following them. Um, we have a, small scene with the magisterium again where Fra Pavel hints that Lyra is important in some way and says she has this other name but refuses to say <laughs> what the name is on screen which I thought was just really unnecessary and time consuming um, Paola and Angelica in Chittagatse uh, want to avenge Tulio who was indeed spectered R.I.P. Tulio. And they are very angry, so they go to hunt down and attempt to kill Will and Lyra because they blame Will for taking the knife from him, his only form of protection. Uh, but uh, Serafina Pekala steps in at the last minute, and by staring intimidatingly at the children, she gets them all to back down. And so, uh, in this way, Lyra and Will have met up with the witches. Um who try to heal Will's hand, but they say they need medicine from their world. So it's, it's kind of unclear what happens here. They like start trying to go back to their own world, but they never get there. Um, actually was Will's hand ever properly healed in this no, season? I think that that's uh, one of yes, my like, uh, Oh, you mean in the book? The parts that I don't know. Like, and in season two, episode the, the no, film, I will, the, the TV show, uh, pause my criticism until no, then. I don't think so. Um, no, it's to me like this episode, even though obviously like stuff had to happen. So like Mrs. Coulter killing Lord mm -hmm. Boreal and the witches meeting up with Lyra and Will, like that kind of stuff had to happen. But to me, a lot of the scenes kind of stretched out like, yes, I don't know. It was just because I guess 
probably some of it is my resentment toward the third book being squished into one show, like one um, series, uh, one season. Um, but to me, like a lot of this was just like kind of foot dragging, like, okay, can we do a little more or or a little less? Something different. Well, are you, hold on, I, I want to, are you saying that you think they, like, no. made decisions here based on the No, I'm saying that to me this episode kind of drugged just because the knowing they only had, just in one so like, like in the first um, season, we oh, okay. get into the subtle knife. And so I would have wished that they got into a little more of the, like, hard content of the th- of the Amber Spyglass in the second season. And so to me, like this episode, like I just don't remember anything particularly remarkable besides like Dr. Malone decided like she has a soft spot for Angelica and Paula. Um, But other than that, a lot of this episode, yeah, a lot of this Mm. episode was just like, okay, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a lot of table setting, right? Yeah. Yeah, very much. Yeah, so. the uh, I don't like the Mary Malone uh, children of Sudagazi <laughs> subplot just because I, I realize they're trying to do something right. to pad out kind of <laughs> like to when she gets into the Malefa world, I guess. Jenna, like you're saying, maybe that's the problem. Like they should have just done that. But like it doesn't really make any sense to me whatsoever um, that she guides them to their parents because she has the angels protection, but they don't need the angels protection because they're still kids. Are they? Yeah. I think part of it's trying to like make more humanity. So it's like, no, that didn't make any sense. Angelica and Paula, like are fierce little kids who get to run their own world and, um, try to kill Will and Lyra. They still like, they miss having someone to hug. (laughs) They miss having a parent. That's how I saw it. Like, Mm. It's like a <laughs> Peter Pan Wendy thing. Like you still need a mom. Yeah, I, 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 you're right, but I hate it. <laughs> yeah. And then from uh, Mary's side of the story, you see her with her uh, niece and nephew. And now, even though she doesn't have any children of her own, and to be clear, they don't make it look like she wants children of her own necessarily, but she's very good with kids. And so when she sees these two young girls who, you know, promptly say that, you know, our parents are dead or they're not here or whatever, we're alone. Please, can we just have a hug? Of course, she's going to do everything she can to make sure that they're safe. But like, can we just because, Sarah, you did say in your summary that Sarah, uh, Serafina, like intimidates them out of murdering them. Like, can we just appreciate how dark the book was at this point where a horde of murderous children converged on Will and Lyra. Oh my, yes. And this is a very strong <laughs> decision to move and humanize them, I think, which is, you know, people are, children are human too. I, you know, I can't disagree with that. <laughs> but, for Christ's sakes. I'm uh, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, what else did you want to say about this uh, episode, Sarah? Uh, Well, Jenna brought up a very important scene earlier in which, um, well, first off, let's go back to (laughs) Mrs. Coulter coming across specters for the first time. And Boreal just nopes out into like 
a, a store and like closes the door like bye you're on your own you crazy bitch maybe he's hoping the specters will kill her because he's realized that she is uh maybe too powerful for him to handle so they'll out get her out league. of the way yeah or out of his yes that's a better way of putting it because that's more accurate um but she just i am I'm, I'm not quite sure if she just like goes into some kind of trance or maybe maybe that's a kind word for it maybe she has reached a level of sociopathy psychopathy what have you where she can like just and obviously she can because we saw her leave her demon in the house while she went to go visit um, right. the university. To be uh, fair, this has just, been set up at least. Yeah. Um, as far as that but goes. But while the, the demon is physically with her, she just walks up to the specters and they come like, you know, in, in their, you know, nebulous shadowy forms, they come and just like <laughs> kind of check her out. And then apparently she becomes queen of the specters. I guess it just seems to have complete control over them. And I really wish that I, mean, I don't know that this would have worked if they had tried to do it because it's all done with visual cues and like music cues and so forth. But I wish that we had been cued into um, whatever kind of mental dialogue might have been happening between Mrs. Coulter and the Spectres. Like, what yeah. exactly did you do to suddenly make them listen to you? Because I think in the books, she teaches them how to fly or something. Yeah. So she's at least book, done something them for fly, them. But in this one, consequences. They, they just But also her like, statement her is that she can give them more, more souls than just by consuming her. You know, that... <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's a good point. right and that makes a lot more sense and they don't make that clear in the tv show i was totally ready to be like you guys have a problem with this one in the book she teaches them to fly and i'm like how do you just teach them to fly but like when they're in right. this one they can fly already but you know what that is a good point she also has a very logical i can give you more souls like basic negotiating yeah i i don't know mm -hmm. But anyway, after all that happens, she and Boreal are uh, appear to be celebrating by uh, sharing a bottle of wine um, near the, the home where Will and Lyra had uh, set up camp for a while. And, um, you know, Boreal's trying to talk about how, you know, they're they're perfect for each other. And, you know, she's even so much more powerful than he thought she was. And, you know, we're, we're such good equals and all of that. And as he starts, you know, choking and realizing something terrible is about to happen to him, she's like, nah, dude, I'm way better than you. Fuck off. And uh, she straight up poisons him. And it's a really satisfying scene. And then she proceeds to drink three more bottles of wine on her own next to his corpse. And it's just great. <laughs> and, you know, morbid, but I, I like that kind of stuff. And, uh, right, so at the very end of this episode, um, uh, Joppery and Scoresby in uh, Scoresby's Balloon um, have found their way uh, somehow through some window and using Joppery's weather skills. Um, they found their way to Chitagatse, but they are also being chased by Magisterium Zeppelins, and they get shot down somewhere in the Chitagatse world, and they have to abandon the balloon. 
And uh, they start going off and we all know where this is headed. And I didn't know if they were going to do it in episode six or episode seven. And they held it off to episode seven, which is where we are off to next. The last episode of the season. I'm going to go by the TV show pronunciation of Asahetra. Sure. But I have listened to the audio books narrated by Philip Pullman himself. So I think I trust his pronunciation above all others that it's a little bit different. That said, Asahetra is easier to say. So let's stick with that. And most, if not all things in the show have been approved by Philip Pullman. So I feel comfortable using uh, that pronunciation. Uh, as all paths converge on Chitagatsa, Lee is determined to fulfill his quest, whatever the cost. Mrs. Coulter's question is answered and Will takes on his father's mantle. A bit too literally, in my opinion, but there we are. Um, Serafina sends two witches ahead from uh, their party as scouts, which turns out to be a terrible idea because one of the witches uh, finds Mrs. Coulter and Mrs. Coulter immediately sets the specters on her and her demon and uh, does a bit of interrogation, as Mrs. Coulter seems to be a really big fan of this season. <laughs> um, and we learn that the name that uh, Fra Pavel never got around to speaking a couple of episodes ago, Lyra's uh, other name in the prophecy is Eve, as in the, you know, book of Genesis, Eve destined to bring about the end of destiny and television show viewers don't know what this means yet. If you've read the books, we get it. Um, but Mrs. Coulter takes from this that this is going to be a terrible thing. If this happens, whether it's for the world or just a terrible thing for Lyra herself, we don't really know where Mrs. Coulter's head is at in that regard at this point. But, um, she allows the specters to kill the witch's demon, therefore rendering the witch a soulless husk, RIP. Um, and then the specters seem to go for the golden monkey a little bit, which again is more like, you know, terrifying in terms of like the what, what degree of self-harm is this in like, you know, our terms of psychology and mental illness and um, yeah, I don't know. I think that scene could have gone off a bit better, but the, I don't know. It, 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 it has some important exposition in it, I guess. Um, oh, Ruta Scotty uh, has, you know, in her quest to find these angels, and I'm pretty sure this, it looks like this would have been a scene that was either directly cut from or um, when they realized they couldn't shoot the Lord Asriel episode, they thought, well, we need to have this little bit with the cliff gas in there. So let's just film this one scene with Ruta Scotty. Um, she comes upon these cliff gas, which are these creepy wolf bat looking things in Lyra's world. And the cliff gas are talking about this big war that Asriel is orchestrating. And they say that Asriel cannot win without uh, Asahetra. And um, 
I'm pretty sure that in the Lord of the Rings exposition that we got a few episodes ago, it's made very (laughs) clear by the narrator that um, the subtle knife is a Sahetra. But I don't think the witches know this. (laughs) Because they keep talking about, oh, we need to find this thing called a Sahetra and bring it to Lord Asriel. But, you know, Lyra and Will never peep up like, oh, we've got that. It's this knife. Here you go. Mm-hmm. Um, There's a lot of dramatic irony going on in this book. Yes. Uh, Mary uh, helps Angelica and Paolo find the adult campsite. And Mary goes off and keeps finding these blue flower petals, which I don't think was a visual clue mentioned in the book. So I'm really interested to see. That was my guess. What that's alluding to. Yeah, I think they have to be. Um, what they're going to do with that. Are they petals from maybe the um, seed pod trees in the Mulefa world? That would be cool. Or if, like from the, from the, the, yeah, the flowers that the, yeah. I mean, I think the big scene is really Lynn Manuel Miranda's. That would be neat. Straight up forgot about that. <laughs> Makes me want to read The Amber Spyglass again. Um, let's see. Oh, and. Yeah, pretty much. I was, I was just about to get to that. So we have in the books, the chapter is called Alamo Gulch. Um, because, uh, during this battle, Lee and Hester have a conversation about how they used to play, you know, cowboy and Indian like games when they were kids and, or pretended they were at the Alamo, which if you're not from Texas, then you probably don't get it. But is this very famous battle fought in what is now San Antonio and, um, the, the Texans famously lost, but it was a very important <laughs> battle for the sake of whatever war <laughs> was being fought at the time. I should be explaining this better as a native Texan, but I'm not. Anyway. Uh, try um, living in San Antonio for a year. It's uh, very controversial. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. Well, we all lived in San Antonio for four years. Well, we lived at Trinity. <laughs> we didn't live in like San Antonio. That's true. I, I we don't were, know. That's shitty we were of me. Like, oh, I've really bubble. lived in San Antonio. Well, I'm in the like fucking outskirts of 1604, but I, I, I've i heard <laughs> more about it. Anyway, yeah, sorry. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, so Jopri and Lee are running from the Magisterium soldiers on foot because the balloon has been shot down. And um, ultimately, Lee tells Jopri to go on without him and he will stick around and, um, you know, stall for time, uh, fight the Magisterium guys to the death, essentially. He doesn't say that in so many words. But if you read the books, you know that's exactly what's going to happen. And he has some lovely touching moments with Hester where she says things like, this is all my fault. Usually I stop you before, you know, we get into circumstances as bad as this. And, you know, Lee just doesn't have enough bullets and he gets gunned down by the magisterium. And it's really sad when, uh, you know, he's, he's all he cares about is protecting Lyra. And the last thing that his demon says to him before she dissipates into dust is we're a helping Lyra and it's just so sad and it hurts also that they um, 
they weren't actually, I mean, they are kind of helping Lyra, uh, but like, I don't know, in the books too, it's kind of this tragic quest and especially more in the books, I think that Lee doesn't really contribute anything. I mean, she's already with Lyra, so it's kind well, of this like, especially, it's I not mean, in not vain, only the but irony there, but also like he does more for Lyra you know, in the third It's kind of a tragic book death and then because of dramatic dying. he doesn't know that like Lyra already essentially has the knife or is with the person that has it. <laughs> As a dead guy. Yeah. Well, what, what I really do love about, um, this, uh, adaptation change here is it, that they just drop the whole, Woman scorned, witch murder of John Perry. Which I thought it was, I always it was more was intriguing kind of, dumb, of a scene though than him just being it, shot I mean, by a soldier. Stop me if you think I'm like overreacting, but it's kind of like feminist wise, a little mm, kind of not great. Maybe I I don't know, but um, well, they couldn't set it up because only four witches survived. That was like. Literally, when we walk but after the bombing, like, and yeah, there's you know fair, four or five of them alive, I, mean, I turn my partner. I was like, I mean, it's barely set up. In the how book. are there how are this gonna, few, and all of them are still going to have to play their roles? But I do like, like not that. possible. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the war, too, right? Are there still just going to be five in the war? I don't know. Well, I guess not. But uh, what what I do like that they do is I think they give Lee's death way more meaning here by letting Will talk to his dad for like a whole scene. And I just think it works so much better at giving Lee his moment because he makes that conversation possible, direct consequence of that sacrifice. And I really liked that here that they do the whole thing where they uh, Jenna was saying earlier will John Perry right. doesn't heal his hand like he did in the book which would have been nice but he does give him his hood which is cool so there's that that's the very think, literally like, taking up his mantle is like you put his literal, jacket on literal <laughs> to your that, point though, which Trevor, I thought I was a, a I'm little kind bit of conflicted um, on I the agree, nose like Lee's sacrifice also, actually okay. did mean something for I mean, the thing, someone's. On the um, nose is but like on the other this hand, whole franchise for me. It, so. it fits more with the like poetic sadness of like you meet your dad, he puts ointment on your hand, and then you lose out on like all you've wanted for most of your life besides your mom to be to have, you know, help. Um whereas like getting the scene, it it does it's nice, like it's I mean, it's not happy because if you're a book reader, you know what happens still. Um, but it's still like it offers more of the like warm fuzzies because he gets to talk to his dad. I don't know. I, I was on the fence about how I felt about like the conversation happening. Still, um. It does take something I, away through the third book because that's again a motivation for him to go to the underworld as well as Lyra. So that's certainly mm -hmm. fair. Yeah. And I, I I agree with both of you in different ways. I, I do think that um Jopery getting shot by a magisterium guy just feels better than the 
whole woman scorned bit. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I can't really say why it just, you know, I, I, I don't know why, but I liked it better. That said, I like the way it's set up in the book better because it has a bit more of the, it's not quite tragic irony, but Trevor, you might have a better word for what I'm about to describe is that Will and his dad have a whole conversation and like Jopery describes that you're going to kill God basically, or that's what Azrael's trying to do. Um, and he heals his hand and whatever, but, um, it happens at night and Will doesn't see his face, his father's face until the witch shoots him. His hood falls back and Will suddenly realizes this is the man he's seen growing up in pictures all his life. So it's like, yes, he got to talk with his dad, but he didn't realize he was talking with his dad until his dad is dying there in his arms. And for me, that had a, just a lot more gravitas in the book. Again, though, how would you put that on film? I, I, and that's the thing <laughs> is it work, it does work better this way on film. But it meant more in the book. I, and I, I, I'm sorry if I'm like second guessing like y'all's adaptation critiques a little bit. I feel like I've, I've been doing that. But like that's only because I have so many critiques of the adaptation that I need to like emphasize that I appreciate the good ones, I guess. I, I don't know. I'm trying to do a balancing act here. Yeah, that's fair. And so then we come to the end of the episode where we have <laughs> a voiceover from James McAvoy. I was genuinely surprised when I heard James McAvoy's voice because I thought he was just completely out for this season. I was like, oh, cool. They at least got him to do a voiceover in quarantine. That's neat. Uh, but then you do actually have him and uh, Stelmaria speaking to... What we quickly realize is this like barren basalt landscape, which oddly enough is pretty well how I pictured it from the books. So good job, I guess, there. Um, and he gives this whole speech about what he's trying to do. And we have to you know, overthrow the, the tyranny of um, scholastic suppression and, and all of this. And will you join me? And as to wait for a few seconds, there's nothing there. He's like, I know you're there. And these, you know, angels materialize out of the air and they're like, yes, we will join you, Azrael, and, you know, sets up all these stakes for the next season. And uh, Will goes and grabs his dad's jacket and kind of wanders off, hopefully with a plan. <laughs> um, and um, Mrs. Coulter, uh, while Will was off talking to his dad, Mrs. Coulter found Lyra. And has captured her and stuffed her in a suitcase and is now on a Zeppelin going off to God knows where with her drugged daughter in a trunk. <laughs> and we don't know where she's going or how Will will ever find them. And will how will Will and Mary, Will and Lyra connect <laughs> with Mary in an, yet another world? And what's going to happen? We don't know because that is the end. Of season two of New <laughs> Dark Materials. We made it. Hurrah. I do like the image of her in a suitcase. It really hammers home. That this is really just about Mrs. Coulter's baggage. Hey. <laughs> See what you did there. 
Oh, I think we're um, all on the same page. Yeah, then. I don't know. I, I should should we rate this? I don't know. But I, I wasn't really there, and Ben like was. Maybe season. other people. So like we're. I mean, I'm always one to argue against ratings, but we did I, rate I, season one. Yeah, let's so, not. Let's not. But rate we rated, but guys, we rated season one. So. Well, Sarah and I were both there, so let's two out of three. Okay, I don't, I don't remember don't what I rated Sarah, season your call. one. I don't even. need to put a fucking number let's, on it. Let's not. Uh, dear listeners, please uh, listen to everything that we have said. <laughs> I assume that you have watched the show uh, before listening to this. If you haven't, dear God, um, all of the spoilers. I guess you don't need to watch it now, but I hope that you will. <laughs> Um, but yes, uh, listen to all of our comments and, and be excited for uh, season three. <laughs> make Did your you? own interpretations, <laughs> make your own decisions, because that's what this whole series is about, isn't it? Is free will and <laughs> making your own choices. I'm very excited for, I am, I am cautiously excited for season three. I can't wait for it to happen. To I'm absolutely something. terrified of what they're going to do to Mulefa. And are the Galavespians even going to be involved? I feel like they could get away with just not having them. Yeah, I can see them. I've never been a huge fan of them, a... even in the books, honestly. Do what? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Did you guys yeah. want to do, Sarah, do you want to do final thoughts at all? Or are you good with that? Um... Sorry, I'm just, if you want me to, just I mean, let me know if you want me to, like, plug the things or whatever. Yeah, I mean, just very broad. Well, actually, I don't know. I, I thought I did, at the beginning, I, I kind of said that, you know, I, well, no, I, let's do final thoughts. Yes, sorry. I my, feel my like I'm only bringing scattered. it up because it's I'm, like, the most negative and, like, I'm just, I should shut up now, but I, 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 I'm so used to it <laughs> that I have, like, stuff that I'm holding back in my head, so I just, I, since this is my idea, I'll go ahead and say, I, I don't necessarily recommend his dark materials, especially season two is a lot worse than season one for me, but I'm still really committed to finishing it. Um, I love the production values and everything about the design, love the title sequence, and I think for the most part, um, the acting is great. Uh, major sticking point with Mrs. Coulter and decisions there. But, um, you know, I, I, I do. I, I wish that the show would just do a little bit more of what it because when it does make up its own thing to like bridge the gaps, I think overall I've really enjoyed it. And I wish maybe if Philip Pullman himself wasn't involved, they could throw out a few more things and just change them. Maybe I would like that better and it would work better on film. I don't know. Because I do think like because I did go back and read the books and I realized a lot of it is like, I mean, not a not more than not. But a, there is a lot of like expository talking about philosophy and religion and like the prophecy and shit. And it kind of results in people like just delivering ominous lines slightly off camera a little more than I would like. And to close out my final thoughts that I insisted on giving, I'm sorry, Jenna, I don't know if you ever yelled at the TV, but the part that I was is when they were like doing this ridiculous tease on the line Eve from the prophecy. And I was just like, it's that literally that thing like from Rocky Horror Picture Show where I'm like, say it. Say yes. It. Just say it. So. Those are my final thoughts. I'm sorry I was holding all that in. 
that uh, as this as the show teaches us, it is not good yeah, to repress. It is briefly good to like I, I agree. So I like season one better than it. season two. Um, cautiously optimistic for season Either, three. Like I, I really don't think they can get it done adequately in in many ways. Like Jenna representing some of the creatures, getting so much like covered and still doing it justice. Um, but I still like I like it. This is a huge part of my childhood, and it's cool to see it like beautifully brought on screen. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed season two very much. Um, season one was definitely a more faithful adaptation of the books, but I do enjoy uh, some of the creative decisions that they are making as um, additions to the books. I agree with Trevor that um, a lot of the expository dialogue is unnecessary, but I also... Like, I get where they were coming from with it because you're moving from a textual medium to a visual medium. So a lot of that can't ha- can't be done in any other way very well. Um, that said, the way they did it could have been done, executed better, if that makes sense. Um, I would recommend this show to anyone who has read the books. Um, I think I would almost recommend it more if you had read the books rather than watching it just cold as a new thing. Um, because I think it's it's very impressive as an adaptation of the books. It is very obviously not going to be exactly the same, but I can tell that the writers and the producers do have a love of the source material and they're making an homage to that, but doing their own thing as well. And I appreciate that. I look forward to season three, whenever that might be. It's probably going to be about two years from now, honestly, because they can't (laughs) start filming well until, or or in earnest, I guess, until COVID is over. Well, no, you need a fundraising campaign. That's what you need. (laughs) CGI people, take all this extra time you now have to make the Mulefa look really, really good. That's how CG works. You have, shh. (laughs) Okay, we'll start now. All right, uh, Trevor, take us out. Okay. Um, thank you all for listening. Uh, Movie Gang Podcast is one of many podcasts on the Tuscan Shed Media Network. Go to TuscanShed.com to find our other podcasts, such as Animania, where we'll be reviewing the new anime season for winter 2021 coming up. Pen and Paper Pod, where there are podcast episodes on the Waterdeep pandemic releasing currently, as well as follow us on Twitch, where we're currently in a different campaign, Marooned in the Desert. Or uh, Geek Space Nine, uh, our Star Trek Deep Space Nine companion podcast, which I am currently enjoying as a uh, quarantine follow along uh, watch that is uh, giving me a lot of joy right now, just kind of uh, as an extra add on reward to watching the best Star Trek show, I think, uh, so far on Netflix. And uh, find us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes. Leave us a like, rating, comment, question, even some misplaced rage. We'd love to hear from you at all, no matter what form your expression takes. Goodbye, good luck, stay safe. All right, thanks guys.